Hello and welcome to episode 51 of the Cognicast. I'm your host, Craig Andera. A couple announcements here. Uh, we'd like to mention again that we have training coming up for Closure, for Datomic, and for Closure Script. You can take any or all of those if you're interested. They're going to be held in March in San Francisco, um, right around Closure West. And then in April in Durham, North Carolina. And you can find more information about all those training events at cognitech.com events. Uh, also, we are very excited to note um, the first Closure Bridge workshop, which is being held in Durham. We're helping to sponsor that. Um, that is to say, we, Cognitech, are helping to sponsor that. Um, so we're pretty psyched that Closure Bridge is, is, uh, is launching. Uh, as I am recording this, the, the event information is not quite up yet, but I suspect uh, strongly by the time you are listening to this, if you go to closurebridge.org, you'll see exactly where to click to sign up. Uh, that event is going to be held April 4th and 5th, and as I said, we are super excited about that. So um, I think that's all I have. Uh, so we'll go ahead and go on to episode 51 of the Cognicast. Today is Friday, January 17th, and this is the Cognicast. I would like to welcome today our guest, Dan Croak. Welcome, Dan. Hey, Craig. Thanks for having me. Oh, no, it's great to have you here. Um, so, uh, Dan, I think I mentioned to you before, and in fact, if I recall, you actually sent me your selections already, but I'm going to ask you here on the show. Uh, we always start with a song. We let the guest pick the song. Uh, that song was kind of playing you in. What song have you picked for that? Yeah, uh, so the song I picked for the intro was a song by the band Lettuce, which is kind of a, a jam band that's got a really awesome horn section, and uh, the song was called The Bowler. Cool. Uh, does that have, does the band or the song have any like personal meaning for you, or just something you've heard and you liked? I just love the, uh, the upbeat you know, nature of it. I have seen that band once. Um, I didn't really know much about them. They opened up for another band I was seeing. Uh, now I forget exactly which band. It might have been Mo. Um, or the Dirty Dozen Brass Bands. They're all kind of in the, the jam band circuit. And Lettuce kind of blew me away when I saw them in person. And so uh, I've been kind of keeping track of their, their stuff on RDO since. Awesome. Um, are they, so you're located in San Francisco, is that right? Yep, that's are right. Are they local to you at all? Um, I don't think so. I think they're actually from the Boston area. So that's really where I, I grew up and just moved out to San Francisco two years ago. But I believe um, Lettuce was um, you know, a funk band that came out of Boston in the, the early 90s. Um, there's a really great music school in Boston called Berkeley College of Music that um, I, I think Lettuce came out of. So um, the, you know, there's a, a few guys in, in there, Eric Krasno in particular is one of the guitarists, Nigel Hall, a few of these other guys that uh, are sort of well-known. They've played with a, a bunch of other um, other bands um, like Soul Live, if you've ever heard of them, uh, they're all sort of part of the same cluster of musicians that do a lot of collaboration together. And they're all um, have typically the common thread is that they came through Berkeley in Boston. Yeah, a substantial number of uh, my the members of my favorite, or well, I don't really have a favorite anymore, but one of the bands I really like, uh, Dream Theater, also attended Berkeley. And I used to live um, uh, just up the road from there, actually. So uh, well awesome. familiar with the school. Awesome. We've, we've had this great conversation so far, and we have not uh, yet introduced you to our, our guests. I mean, we've said your name is Dan Croak. Uh, you work for uh, ThoughtBot, correct? That's right. Yep. So uh, what, do you, what do you do for them? A uh, variety of things. So, um, you know, really, I've, I've been with the company for about six years. I had originally hired ThoughtBot. I was a client of ThoughtBot. So for people who aren't familiar with the firm, we're a consulting company, software consulting 
Um, so companies and organizations of all shapes and sizes hire us for um, software design and, and development. So these days it's mostly iPhone apps and um, Ruby on Rails apps, and sometimes a combination thereof. So you know, an iPhone app that has a Ruby on Rails API in the back end. And um, I had hired Thoughtbot, really got to know the guys uh, who were working there uh, um, when they were a small team, and sort of learned Rails through that process. Um, I had been doing .NET development and before that ASP, so I was kind of in the, the Microsoft stack working at uh, um, Fidelity Investments, a, a large, mostly 401k company and um, mutual fund company. And I uh, really liked what they were doing with test-driven development, and I wasn't even really using version control at the time, and uh, you know, all their practices that, that I've been reading about in sort of the agile literature, extreme programming literature, um, they were practicing in real, real, real life. So I, I liked that, and I liked the Ruby language and what Rails was doing. This was around the Rails 1.0 time period. And um, after that, I sort of left my job at, at Fidelity and was doing a little bit of freelancing and um, for, did a couple of small Rails apps and then came back to ThoughtBot and said, uh, you know, I want to work with you guys. It's just a really um, a, a team that I think I can learn a lot from. And I've been doing Rails development with you know, since then, so I've worked with about 45, I think was the last time I counted, a few months ago. 45 different clients, uh, a lot of startups. Um, and the last few years, um, I, I kind of joined the management team. My, my title is the chief marketing officer. So that sort of means, um, you know, attracting and retaining customers. Um, so doing, being involved in the sales process. And then my move out to San Francisco was driven by, you know, our desire as a management team to open a second office. So ThoughtBot was really uh, only based in Boston at the time. And then we opened the San Francisco office. So I came out here to do that. Uh, hired about 20 folks, designers, developers, um, uh, you know, both mobile and, and web. And uh, that's, that's my ThoughtBot story, I guess. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, the, there's all sorts of, I mean, I think people that know Cognitech at all, um, can kind of see uh, some of the reasons why, uh, you know, we had an idea that we might want to talk to you. Um, there's just tons of parallels. I mean, everything from, um, you know, kind of the size of your company. You're, we're, we're both in sort of the medium-small range right now, although it sounds like you're, you guys are growing very rapidly. Uh, you know, the technology choices, we for a long time uh, counted Rails as our uh, core tool. Um, obviously, these days we emphasize uh, closure, uh, datomic and the other things that we make and support, but that doesn't mean that Rails does not have a big place uh, for us. It certainly does. We have many of the same opinions as you do about um, its appropriateness as a as a tool for rapidly building uh, websites. And uh, and then I think the big thing that um, uh, maybe we could one of the big things we could talk about today has to do with kind of how our companies work. Now you you mentioned things like um, uh, TDD and and sort of I could maybe read between the words a little bit, kind of this whole suite of um, what, when I came to uh, Cognitech, seemed to me to be advanced, and, and I still think this is true, advanced software practices, you know, kind of better software practices. I mean, you said you weren't even using version control, right? Which, right. you know, I think people, anyone at either of our companies would be horrified to find a project that wasn't using some kind of version control. But that was my experience, too, was that, you know, I was a consultant and was doing this type of work. So uh, so anyway, that's sort of the roundabout way of saying that um, I think our two companies have a lot of overlap in terms of how we uh, perceive um, the way software should be written. Um, and your company has gone so far as to write, we have a version of this, too. You, you, you have your uh, playbook, which I believe you just... Um, uh, revised and released a new kind of iteration of. Um, yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, playbook.thoughtbot.com if anyone wants to take a look at it. And totally agree in the the similarities and parallels between Thoughtbot and Relevance. Um, I've I've run into or crossed paths with uh, Stu Holloway and and um, seen Justin Getlin's name all over the place for for years and years. And uh, I'm I'm sure that a lot of the you know, extreme programming practices and, and philosophy um, are the same across the companies. And I think those are the things that, that last. You know, if you go to uh, the extreme programming website and look through the rules, you know, I think in the footer it says copyright 1999. Yeah, right. these, are, these are things that, that last. Um, I think Bob Martin wrote a blog post a few months ago 
sort of talking about um, the Kent Beck book, uh, Extreme Programming Explained, and just how persistent the, those practices are, that they still, they still work. Um, and so, you know, all, all kinds of things. Um, iteration planning, releasing, you know, early and often, user stories, um, version control, stand-up meetings, um, sustainable pace, you know, testing first, pair programming, all that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, if you if you do come from, you know, background like, like I came from or uh, are just learning software for the first time, that sounds like a long list of things. But, you know, when you're in the environment of, you know, relevance or, or thought by, you realize how uh, natural those practices are. And, and uh, once you start doing them, um, it's really very, very easy to keep doing them. It, it, partially because it gives you a rhythm to follow and, uh, you know, a framework to work, work within so you can focus on the more important, you know, aspects of, you know, creating the software that, that people need, uh, focusing on the domain and, and letting the other stuff uh, melt away a little bit, uh, you know, in terms of how do I, how do I make this change without upsetting the rest of the code base and, and, the, and those kinds of things. Uh, and so those practices are there. And the playbook, you know, is a little bit more tactical, you know, I think, um, it wouldn't be much value in um, just sort of uh, regurgitating what extreme programming or you know like the stuff that came back has written you know years and years ago. So I think what we, we've tried to put in there and the, the genesis of the playbook was originally just the questions we were answering for our clients during the sales process or during the onboarding process for a project um, that we felt like we could have. We could have a very, we were saying the same thing. The answers were the same for all the clients, and we wanted to write it down in a, as concise a way as we could um, so that they understand our process um, so we can just get past the explanation part of, of working together and really start working together. So it's evolved over time. Uh, it's about three or four years old, the playbook, um, and we put it online so that others can, can check it out. Um, you know, if you, if you, read it, you'll, you'll notice, I think, that we sort of try and phrase it carefully that it's it's really just what, what we're doing. Um, you know, when we talk about, when I, when I think about best practices and those kinds of things, I just think about best practices for what's working for us. Uh, as a consultant, you know, people talk about consulting 101 is don't give people advice unless they've asked for it. Um, right. And uh, it's out there and people can see what we're doing, but it's up to them to uh, to apply it in their own situations, if they want to or not, or, or figure out um, which portions work for them. So that's the core to the name playbook is that it's just a set of, of plays and tactics that you can pull out if you think any of them work for you. Um, but it's not prescriptive. Um, there's no formulas that are going to work for everyone. So um, it's a lot of content in there. And, and uh, I'd love folks to check it out and give us feedback. Yeah, I, I have to admit, I haven't read the whole thing, but I did spend some time going over um, uh, parts of it, and there, there's a lot in there. I mean, I didn't know uh, what to expect exactly, but there's, there's quite a few things in there. Um, so you said, you said something that was interesting to me about the playbook, which is that you had had conversations with customers and you know started to write down some of the things that you were explaining to them again and again. It is so. Uh, do I understand that part of your process for bringing a customer in is, is to have them read all or some of that, or it just was a way to kind of get it out there, or how do you use the playbook as part of the building a relationship with the customer? You know, we don't force anyone to, to read the whole thing. As you said, it's it's long. It's like 14,000 words. And uh, to get to that point, uh, I probably had to write, you know, 200,000 or 300,000 words before <laughs> editing it back down. You know, it's uh, it's dense. Uh, hopefully, it's, it's, it's dense with information. So it can take a, a while to read it over and, and let it sink in. And sometimes it, it, it's a better reference than um, when you need it than to sit down and read start to finish. Um, so typically what will happen is, you know, someone contacts us and says, hey, you know, think about writing this software or I've got a piece of software and I want to extend it. We hear you guys have the right skill set. You know, can we talk about an engagement? How do you guys work? And, you know, in that first email, we can say, yep, let's either get together in person or schedule a phone call. In the meantime, um, here's a few relevant sections that might be applicable to your particular project um, of our playbook. This might save us time on the phone so we can, you know, talk even more in depth about your particular product and get more into the meat of what problem are you solving for, for users and uh, how can 
but what are some ideas of, of how the engagement might be structured? So, um, given a few links to the different sections, and that first email is, is pretty typical, and then in a, in a follow up to the phone conversation, maybe a couple other sections, um, and then it, it's sort of you know, we might encourage them to you know feel free to read the whole thing if if you want. There's a lot of stuff in there, but uh, depending on the person we're talking to, you know, if it's a very non-technical, like founder of a startup or something, they might be a little bit less interested in knowing the production checklist that's in there, you know, that we talk about, you know, things like, are we using SSL? See the SSL certificates, you know, section, you know, are API requests being made through a separate subdomain, api.example.com? Those kinds of things uh, aren't going to be as relevant during the sales process. That, that section is a little bit more for the developers who are getting the, the application ready for its first production launch and we're kind of going through and making sure we didn't miss some critical things. Um, but I think as a whole, it's, it, it has tended to help clients understand, hey, this is a, a thoughtful firm, they're comprehensive, they're you know thorough. Um, so in that, that way, it helps them just, I think, be a little bit reassured that this, uh, for a stranger to take help them with their business or, or solve their problems. Yeah, no, I mean, that makes total sense. I mean, we see similar stuff in the sense of, um, actually, this is a question I want to ask you, really. So we, what we'll see is that uh, people that come to us, come to us, and I'm not as involved in the sales process as you are, but, you know, to, to grossly simplify, we'll see at least two classes of customer. There are people who say, we really like the way you work. You know, we saw Rich's Simple Made Easy or, you know, whatever. We read uh, your uh, are the equivalent of, of the playbook on the Cognitech site, but somehow they know something about how we work um, versus uh, th another class of customer we'll see, uh, potential customers, um, we like the tools that you're using, um, you know, uh, uh, something about the technology. Do you, do you sort of see the same uh, split? And as part of that, if you do, you know, are the people that are coming to you because of how you work do you ever get commentary about, oh yeah, I read the playbook and it was it was like a revelation, and I, you know, I want I want to work that way, and I haven't been able to till now. Yeah, you know, I think there's a lot of different classes of of customer or potential customer who contact us. Um, I'm I'm sure you guys find this as well, where there's a number of developers who contact us, you know, a, a VP of engineering or just a solo developer or a CTO of some company who are, have been using our open source projects or they've read the playbook or they've read the blog or, or something like that. And they may, maybe they've known about us for a while, especially if they're in the, the Rails community and um, they'll, you know, they'll say, okay, we need a couple extra hands here. Uh, who's, who's someone that we think would be a good fit? We know ThoughtBot does Rails and has been doing it for a while. Let's check in with them and a few other people to see uh, whether, whether they can help. Um, but, I th but I think probably, you know, especially in the early days, but still to this day, you know, a lot of our clients are referrals from previous clients. So, you know, I think most consulting shops uh, recognize that you're you're sort of only as good as your last project. Uh, you kind of have to. Keep making people happy. That's the core of the business, and um, you know they're gonna they're gonna be if, if they're happy, they're gonna refer you to people like them that they, they have their own networks um, who are, you know are folks who are gonna want to build some software. So that's that's I think that's still probably the the majority or, or you know the core of um, our new business. Yeah, I, I mean I was independent for a while, and like I said, I'm not super involved in the in the Cognitech sales process, but. Certainly when I was an independent, um, you know, people would ask me, how do you find your gigs? And I think out of the, I don't know how many I did, but it was, you know, a couple dozen at least probably in the years that I was doing it, all but one were people I already knew somehow. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's very much the case that consulting, um, like a lot, not exclusively consulting, but certainly consulting is a, is a who you know and, and the people that they know and so forth and so totally. on. Yep. Yeah. And, and, you know, ThoughtBot was a seven-person company when I started. Now we're, you know, in the mid-60s uh, in terms of number of people. And uh, e even to this day, there's so much referral business. <clears throat> and part of it is just we're doing more projects. You know, there, there's, I don't know how many projects we did last year. Maybe, you know, it's in the, the, the many tens, you know, maybe around 30, 40 projects, something like that. And so that's just a lot of people on the, on the client side that uh, as long as we're doing 
good job that um, you know, now know about us and hopefully you know, respect the work and uh, can be a, a source of, of new business. So I, that leads me to a question. So like I said, our companies are similar size. We are, I don't know the exact count, but something like 40. You guys are somewhere in the mid-60s, I think you said. Mm -hmm. um, do you, and, and you know, you've recently done a bunch of hiring. I don't, I don't know whether you have plans to continue doing that. But you know, if you're just speculating, um, is there something about being, you know, kind of on the medium small size like we are that enables or is helpful in working some of the ways that we both work that would are inherently more difficult for larger or possibly even smaller companies? Like, in other words, is there something about being in that size range, you know, call it from, say, seven people up to 60 where you're at, that you worry would not scale to some other number? I think I worry about that less now, having gone through the growth that we have the last few years. And I think for a very long time, the first really eight years of ThoughtBot's life, I think that's actually another parallel between Relevance and ThoughtBot is I think they were founded in the same year, 2003. Yeah, so I think that's both, right. both just hit, hit our 10-year anniversaries last year. And um, you know, for the first 10 years, the, the company's team size hovered between like five and 20. And go up and down, you know, over time. But uh, there was a real fear of growing beyond this mythical 20, 30 person number that a lot of people talk about. It's just hard to manage. Or do you start to add these layers of people management, and you know, do you, have, do you introduce project managers, which you know we thought might be the kiss of death, you know, for uh, software projects and things like that. And I think as we've grown, we've lost that fear a little bit because we've done it in a way where, you know, the, the people who are opening offices like San Francisco and New York and Stockholm and Denver and Philadelphia and Raleigh, you know, are developers or designers um, who have been with the company for a while or that we've known through the Ruby or other communities for a very long time. And uh, they're the same people that are, that are doing the work and they're often coding uh, on projects or code reviewing or in the in the chat room or, you know, deploying the Heroku or, you know, doing all that kind of stuff. And so it's, uh, I think, done done carefully. You know, there's, there's a number of organizations, you know, um, GitHub's another one that people always talk to talk about as, you know, pretty flat hierarchy um, in terms of their structure, or as long as you sort of have a culture of kind of makers, doers, people who are, are really in the mix there and trying to automate as much of the other operations that any business needs to do. Um, you know, so stuff like the playbook and you know, stuff like our laptop script and dot files and all, you know, we have internal scripts where when we onboard a new employee, uh, we fill out a form and then a bunch of custom scripts that we, we wrote kick off to add them to our HR system and their payroll and like, you know, all, all kinds of things that uh, maybe other companies um, that aren't quite so technical would do. And um, it, it just sort of, it's, it's, not, it's not like a rapid, to, to folks who have who've thought, watched ThoughtBot for a while, it might feel rapid, but uh, it sort of feels very, um, you know, just building on, on, on blocks that we've been doing for a long time. It, it feels like it gets a little easier to add a new office or you know, to integrate a new person after we've done it a number of times and carefully um, you know, added those things like the, the onboarding scripts. Right, that makes sense. I mean, um, so that actually raises another question. That so, first of all, I wasn't aware that you guys had so many offices. Um, would, so it, 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 which is cool. It's a little different than the direction we've taken. So we have um, the one physical location in Durham, but we're highly distributed. People working from home. Yep. Do you take that approach at all, or is it that there are a bunch of offices in various locations that people tend to go to? It's more the latter, yeah. So I think that was another sort of fear for us, um, you know, is uh, in terms of growth, you know, when we're in the, the, the 10 to 20 person range, and it's like, all right, well, what, what's, our, what's our next challenge? You know, at a, at a certain point, too, you kind of feel like, are we doing too much of the same thing? Where, where can we stay satisfied and feel like we're growing you know, in our own personal developments. Um, you know, the company is just owned by a handful of developers who all work at the top or all work at the company. Uh, it's, there's no outside funding or anything like that. And you know, the, the 
the purpose of, of the company is, you know, to create great software and create an environment where we're happy being developers, being designers. And uh, the the balance that we were trying to strike with our own growth, you know, people do have ambitions, uh, was, all right, we could go different different directions, different strategies. Do we want to have a 50-person office in Boston and expand into different technologies? You know, and you know, have a Ruby practice and a Android practice and an iOS practice and you know, DevOps practice and all kinds of stuff. And we said, no, let's let's do let's stay in the you know, design Rails iOS for now and recreate the you know, environment we have in Boston in new places. Um, we really like working face-to-face with, with clients as much as possible, and to do that, we need to be in different markets. So there's, there's only so much you know, Rails business in, in Boston, um, and there's plenty of work in San Francisco, New York, and Stockholm, these other places that, that I'm mentioning where we move to. And uh, the advantage there, of that, too, is we can say, all right, we're not going to grow any of these locations beyond a certain headcount so that it feels... It feels like a, a nice tight team in each place. Uh, that each office is, you know, will end up being a five to thirty person office. Um, so some of them, you know, in the smaller markets might stay like smaller teams. Um, so you have that local culture of tight knitness. But then, you know, you, you jump on our campfire, you know, in our different campfire rooms, and there's so much talent, uh, so many people you can ask questions of um, and get code reviews from. You know, people have really strong Unix backgrounds or, you know, who are exploring Haskell and Clojure and Scala and Go and you know, all these different languages or, you know, have worked on projects with different databases and all kinds of things. And there's, there's a lot of feedback that can happen that, um, from just the size of the, the company across offices. And then in each location, you know, I think each location is going to end up having its own and does end up having a little bit of its own personality, partially just due to the, the, the locations that they're in. You know, people tend to you know be a little bit I don't know more uh, outdoorsy, hiking, biking. It seems like in the Denver office and you know things like that, uh, and that sort of leads to different cultures of how much time in the office. You know, as much as possible, we'd like people to be in our in our physical offices 40 hours a week. Um, but you know, we, we've run all kinds of experiments. Uh, we run experiments all the time. We have a, a research board that we talk about in the playbook. And uh, we sort of publicly share the failures and uh, successes of those experiments in our newsletter. It's called the Bot Cave. Um, <laughs> I like and, it. And uh, like one of the so some many of those experiments are things like how much time do you, do you work at home versus in the office? Um, so you know I, I've in the San Francisco office we've done quite a few of those kinds of experiments where. We said, hey, we're going to move daily stand-up time from 10 a.m. to noon. And we're going to say, if you want to work from home or coffee shop or something in the morning, go for it. And you know, that came out of reading some research about how people are really effective um, in the morning. They're kind of caffeinated. They've got, you know, their brains have been well-rested from the night before. Sit down and get, get you know, into your, your cave, wherever that is, you know, your home office, a, a couch, a coffee shop or something like that. And uh, you know, trying to avoid some some different uh, interruptions that might happen in other environments. Come in at noon, check in with each other, you know, at normal stand up, and then you know, use the office and the physical space for whiteboard time and the kind of planning and uh, design discussion that is really healthy in, in person. Um, so we, we sort of have like a hub and spoke you know, approach where we've got all these different physical locations and we don't have any remote people that are, you know, in totally different cities and environments off on their, their lonesome. Um, they always have the ability to come into an office and talk to their, their teammates in person and that's sort of the default. But if you want to structure some of your week um, to, to work from, from home, I think that's personally healthy uh, and that's something we're, we're experimenting with a little bit in the, the San Francisco office. So other than the, uh, the bot cave, which I love, and I believe, um, I thought when I was clicking around is is that something that other people can subscribe to the newsletter, or is that internal only? Yeah, that, that's public. Okay. Um, so when if you go to like the playbook.thoughtbot.com, uh, right at the top, there's a, a form field where 
if you put in your email address there, you can get the PDF and EPUB and Mobi for the uh, versions of the playbook. Uh, but that also gives you access to the, the playbook. Uh, I'm sorry, the, the bot cave, um, which is intended to be about monthly, um, de delivered monthly. Uh, it ends up being a little bit more like bi-monthly. Just I, I try not to force it. <laughs> I try not to send it in, unless it, it feels like it's it's meaty and, and useful to people. Um, mm -hmm. And some of those things, like you know. The, the working from home experiment, there's no time sensitivity to that. Um, that that's kind of an experiment that uh, will be useful whether we, we send it January 1st versus January 15th to, to someone who gets it. Yeah, as a person who, uh, you know, produces content for public consumption, I have every sympathy with, you know, how sometimes things are time sensitive and sometimes they aren't and you want to, you know, manage your time in producing it. Um, totally. Um, so, but I was going to say, other than uh, other than the the bot cave, do you have other mechanisms mechanisms that you use to maintain whatever uh, global aspects of the culture? For example, do you bring everyone in the company together, or do uh, craftsman swaps, or what other? Do you have any other mechanisms like that? Yeah, definitely, and I think I'll say you know the the bot cave is like. Mm -hmm almost the end result of the, the cross-company research and experimentation. It's sort of the last thing. So it's not the place necess necessarily where we're going to share a lot of information. It's more the uh, record of it. Um, so I'm trying to like um, summarize what we've learned internally for anyone else to, to learn from. Um, so I think the, the primary things are, are the tools you'd, you'd sort of expect, you know, we've got chat rooms, um, multiple chat rooms. There's an everyone room in, in Campfire that if you're working, uh, we want you to be in. We have a code room that's sort of, uh, uh, I think our, our tagline on the, the header of that chat room is like no shenanigans. It's supposed to be uh, you uh -huh. know, just just like, hey, I'm, I'm struggling with this code problem. Uh, here's a pull request. Does anyone you know, t take a look at it? Um, even if you're not on that, that particular project or you know, has anyone tried this tool or that tool? So it's just constant ongoing conversation there. We talk a lot about the, the research Trello board in the playbook. So we use Trello pretty heavily to manage different processes. So we use Trello to manage the, the sales process and hiring process. To me, that's um, you know sort of Trello's strength. Um, so there's a lot of project management tools out there, Basecamp and Pivotal Tracker and Asana and uh, you know all kinds of other ones. And uh, to me, Trello is like very good at Designing your own process, so you know we'll use tools like Zapier to, to bring in contact form requests from um, our, our sales form or uh, from you know our hiring form on our website and just route it into Trello, and uh, you can you know drag each particular unit of of um, in, in the case of the research board research. Um, so you know example research would be like. Uh, what, I'm, what I'm working on recently is I'm trying to figure out how to get um, SSL certificates working well with uh, DNS simple, routing the DNS directly to um, a CDN, so fastly, fronting that CDN in front of our origin, so Heroku. So we've got a Rails app running on Heroku, in front of that is fastly uh, your CDN, in front of that is your DNS, and I'd like to be able to not have the www subdomain. So there's all kinds of DNS restrictions around having your Apex domain, your root domain, going to do, doing certain things with that. And so my, that's my ideal situation. Is like I just, you've got I just those, those check, sort of layers. You you did say your title includes the word marketing, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so like that that's like a, a particular research card that uh, I am interested in. But it's still a little bit experimental. There's definitely some problems with it. It might not work. I might need to. The the failure of that might be that we say, okay, no no Apex domain. The, the right right way to do this is just to go with the www approach because there are performance problems. Uh, you don't get the benefit of the, the edge service or something on, on Fastly, uh, that which seems to be you know one of the potential problems with it. So like that's. Uh, that's one thing. We'll move that through, and there's you know, maybe five or six people who are commenting on that. We have a guy who used to work at Akamai. You know, he's got all kinds of experience with CDNs, and um, there's some really good conversation happening on that card. And we'll move it through different steps and say, hey, have we actually tried this on a project? 
um, you know, or is this all theoretical? And so that's kind of like, if it's a theory stage, it's in one column. And if it's in, yep, we've tried this in a couple projects, here's what happened, it's kind of a different column. And we try and we're trying to conclude it, you know, so I think that that's the, the real benefit that we've had from the board like that is, first of all, there's one place you can go and search and find that, that particular unit of research, but there's also a decision that's made. So before that, before we had this board and this process, I think there was plenty of great conversation happening in different places, but it sort of gets distributed across different, different places. It's not in one organized spot and there's no sort of finality to if I wanted to to front my application with a CDN again, you know, is this a good idea or what are the potential trade-offs I'm making? And you can just search in one place and find, oh yeah, we did think this is a good idea, let's do it again. So do you, uh, okay, so, tr and we use Trello as well uh, internally. I use it actually to manage the podcast. This episode mm -hmm. will get its own card and it'll move Absolutely. to various columns and it's great. Yeah, great um, for editorial calendar, that kind of thing. Yep, I, my wife and I actually have been experimenting with using it for managing the house, <laughs> you know, yep. the various things that we need to do and keeping track of it that way. Um, so, uh, but the the um, the thing I wanted to ask you uh, was, so you have a couple things. First of all, on the question of the Trello board, is that the final destination or is there frequently a step after that where you, you know, collate that information into something more like a document. Obviously, some of the results of that experience winds up in the Bot Cave newsletter, I would imagine. But, uh, but is there like a, a formal step ever where you uh, capture it in some other way, or is it just go look in uh, Trello? Yeah, absolutely. So there there could be lots of different results to you know the the experiment, whether it was a success or failure. So if it's you know Rails related, um, we'll try and. During the conversation, um, we'll, you know, we'll be trying this on real projects. People will be using this on their client client projects. Um, but then during you know, sort of the decision phase, it's like, okay, if this is a good idea and we should do this on all of our projects, let's put it into into suspenders. So suspenders is uh, another project you could find on our GitHub account, github.com slash thoughtbot slash suspenders. It's our Rails template. So when we start a new project, that's kind of our standard. Um, those are the things we, we know we're going to use on most projects. And if we need to remove one or two things, that's fine. But if it's something we want to do on all projects, we want it to go there. So before we conclude the experiment, that's sort of like the last part of the conversation where we say, is this a good idea? If so, should there be anything done about it? Should it go into one of our open source projects? Uh, should, should something be removed from one of our open source projects? Because we decided that this is no longer a, a good idea. Um, should this just be a blog post? Should this be, you know, a video on Learn? Uh, learn is a um, learn.thoughtbot.com is like a, a learning service that we provide, a subscription service with videos and screencasts and stuff. And uh, you know, there's lots of outcomes that, that can come from it. So that's another part of it where we say, let's, if there's something that we need to document, uh, it might be in the guides too. There's lots of different places it could go, but let's not let it sit in this card that's about to be archived. So even though you can always go back and search and find detailed conversation, let's try and put it in a place that is now usable. And it, you know, if it can be a more actionable place like a, a, a repo like Suspenders where there's code that can be run, that's going to be a more useful conclusion than just some opinions on, on a thread. Hmm. OK, that makes sense. Um... And then kind of the, uh, the the broader version of that was we were talking about, uh, you know, because I'm interested in how uh, companies roughly our size manage distributed uh, uh, environments since I myself am not in Durham. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I'm I'm deeply invested in how do we succeed as a as a company um, when we're spread all over the place. All right, so you have, you know, various uh, certainly tools. Do you do you have other mechanisms where you actually bring people together physically. We have, for example, something that we call Cognation, which used to be called Ink Relevance, where we have the whole company come to Durham and, and get together, uh, you know, several times a year. Um, I mean, you're, I, you said Stockholm. I mean, that, that's a long way for people to go if the destination right. is San Francisco or even if it's, you know, Boston. Yeah, yeah, I do think that's important to get people together. Um, so last year we called it our Summer Summit. So in the middle of like June or July, we had everyone come to Boston. And I uh, spent, I don't know, three or four days together in the Boston office, you know, no client work. Um, you know, we, part of the sort of the parameters we put around it were try and work on projects with 
people in person, don't work you know, on a project by yourself, try and work with someone from a different office. Uh, we explicitly forced some dinners, you know, where we'd say, okay, you know, we'd pull, pull cards out and say, all right, you know, these five people are going to dinner at this restaurant. We try and mix people from different offices who might not know each other just so we get to see each other in person. And it makes all the online relationships that much easier once you've kind of heard a little bit about people's families and interests outside of work and um, their general personality and that kind of stuff. You get some of the more blunt criticisms, you know, in code reviews or in the campfire type thing. Um, roll off your shoulder a little bit easier when you're like, all right, I, I know where this person is coming from. They're, they're just trying to get the job done here in, in Campfire. Um, we've, we have that relationship outside of work. Um, it's certainly expensive, <laughs> you know, when you have 60-something people, you know, trying to bring them together in one place. So it gets harder and harder every year. But uh, I think we'll, we'll, uh, we really, we're, we're happy we were able to do it last year, and uh, hopefully we can do it again in the future. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it's the same for us, which is it's a significant expense, but we realize a lot of the same benefits. So we, uh, you know, intend to keep doing that to to the extent that we can, which um, fortunately has been, like I said, multiple times a year um, for us right now anyway. So, yeah, so I want to come back to the to the playbook a little bit just because uh, I, I, you know, I I could I couldn't tell in my admittedly cursory uh, look at it. I, I really ought to go back and read it because what I did read was 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 very interesting and um and uh, I, I think there's a lot of good stuff in there. Uh, it, it, were you the prime author of that? You, I mean, you mentioned, I think you said I, when you were talking about writing 300,000 words. How, how much of the, the, the playbook is from your fingers? It's a lot. You know, I, I think of it a little bit more as being the editor r- rather than like an author, mostly because the, the words might have, you know, come from my fingers, but a lot of it is is reviewed. You know, this is... Like just about everything else we have, uh, it's in it's in Git. You know, we're, when we're changing content, we're trying to open up pull requests. Uh, you know, the, the playbook is written in Markdown. You know, I'm in Vim. You know, when I'm writing it, it's the same same thing with our sales contract. Uh, you know, we we have our sales contract in Markdown, and we're opening pull requests for each other. Um, whether it's so the managing directors of different offices can help each other out with with any potential changes that a client wants to the contract. All that stuff's done in that sort of flow, but e- even in cases when I've slipped a little bit and you know gotten a little bit over aggressive about changing sections, so that it's going to be so hard for people to re- review any kind of pull request, and I've just said, okay, I'm going to push this to master and ask, ask people to to read it on staging. Um, the content is all from the work that we're doing as a company. You know, there's there's very few you know, original Dan ideas or something in here. It's all extraction from the work we're doing. So I look at it a little bit more of as an editorial role or being a reporter uh, on behalf of the team, um, sort of interviewing them to see what, what they're doing, which practices are working, do we consider something a standard, uh, that, that kind of thing. Do you have any favorite sections? I mean, any anything that you maybe get an especially surprised reaction from the client or things that are particularly valuable in your mind or anything that stands out to you? That's an interesting question. Uh, you know, I, th- I think the section that is at least the most new in this version uh, and is therefore like a new practice that we've been doing over the last year is the one of the first sections, which is the product design sprint section. And so that didn't exist in the, the previous version of the playbook. It's something we're, we're doing basically as a default now in all, all projects. Um, not always, but most of the time. And uh, it's kind of a more formalized kickoff project, you know, kickoff process to a project. So anytime you're, you're starting something new, it's like, okay, we could get in a room, we could whiteboard and you know, create some, write some stories. And I think different firms have different, or in different teams have different ways of doing this. But this idea of the product design sprint came from Google Ventures design team, and they've really written about that. And even their version was a sort of reformation of a lot of old uh, usability and uh, user experience techniques that have been in the industry for a long time. But they've done a nice job of kind of capturing uh, a formalized process to say, all right, we need to spend a little bit of time making sure we understand your domain. Uh, you know, we're, we know design and we know development. We know what's possible on the iPhone in terms of making it vibrate and accessing GPS and all kinds of native features like that. Mm-hmm. You tell us what, you know, in, industry you're in, what problems your users have, and uh, 
you know, well, let's spend a little bit of time making sure we understand that world. Then let's all as a group get as many ideas out on the table as possible about how we could solve this problem. Then let's converge it down. Let's, let's filter it down into just one workflow. Let's prototype that workflow and let's get real people in to test that prototype, whatever that form that prototype takes, whether it's you know um, some code on the iPhone that we're going to throw away and start with a new repo on the following Monday, or if it's you know a, a Flinto prototype for for iOS, or if it's you know paper prototypes, it could be lots of different ways of doing it. But getting that early feedback from, from potential users to say, does this solve your problem? So it's not a usability test; it's more of a you know, problem fit test, um, and that's I think put us in the right mindset as a, as a team internally and in the, getting the client in the right mindset of, wow, we can get a lot of information without spending weeks or, or months um, releasing software and just make sure we're readjusting our direction as, as early and often as we can. And so, you know, for years we've had clients be surprised during the process of how different the software ended up being um, from what they thought they wanted coming into the engagement. And I think that's a success of, you know, in an agile environment. But um, I think that that realization happens to them sooner um, because we've put that product design sprint process in place. So how long is that? Is it to like typical two weeks or is it change in length or how, how much time do you spend on that? We change it in length. So the Google Ventures does it five days, uh, I think every time. So they have um, you know, five phases, understand, diverge, converge, prototype. Um, and we've called it test and learn. I think they had a different name for it. I think they called it validate. And I think we changed it to test and learn in, in our vernacular because we didn't, we wanted to be careful about, you know, looking at the, the user tests a little bit you know, as objectively as possible. We didn't want to um, um, sort of put ourselves in a situation where we're validating our, our assumptions. Right. And, uh, so, so we've just said, okay, these are five phases, and sometimes we can condense them down into a, f- a fewer number of days. So, uh, I did one this week where we did it in four days. I've been on other projects where we've done them in three days, and sometimes, you know, it's it's nice to start with five days in the beginning of a project, do that user test, and then, you know, it's unlikely that we're going to, you know, nail a problem that we've never seen before uh, in that first you know, in a day of prototyping uh, based on a few days of um, design exercises. So it might be worthwhile in the week two to do a more condensed sprint that's like three days. Um, so, so if there's an aspect of iteration on it, so it's not a, a big design upfront experience. Um, and, you know, return to that product design, product design sprint form later on in the project. Um, so it's, you know, if it's it's not supposed to design the whole product and then go off and spend three three months. You know, you can come back every few weeks and say this aspect of this product is not working very well. Let's you know focus our sprint on this one workflow within it, um, and that may not take five days. Let's just make sure we go through the phases uh, to get the benefit of, uh, of structuring our our minds to on on the problem. But if it only takes two or three or four days, that's fine too. Gotcha. That makes sense. Now I was asking more because. Um... Uh, it's, it's actually pretty cool to have, uh, you know, on the order of five days and, and then there's a, a prototype. And, I mean, you know, prototypes being what they are, of course, that's, you know, a f- there's a lot more things that need to be done before you can ship it. But um, yeah. it's still, I think, kind of neat to focus on having something uh, tangible early in the process. I think that's uh, something that uh, people uh, tend to really like. And I suspect that your customers... Um, uh, tend to be, you know, thrilled when they see it the first time. I mean, I think everybody, sure, it's a prototype, but I don't know. I, I just people seem to get excited when they had an idea, and then not too many days later, there's there's a thing that in some way realizes that idea. Absolutely. Yeah. And if, and if people who are, you know are in the Rails community, you know, are listening or have read Agile Web Development with Rails, you know, I read that years and years ago. You know, DHH, I think, was the primary author of it. That's that theme is right. It is is really you know, kind of hand in glove with Rails. Um, so you can prototype really quickly in Rails too. So you don't always need to go to the low fidelity prototyping tools. Sometimes you can jump into um, some of the some of our design and development tools, uh, even if it's a HTML, CSS, JavaScript framework, or a little bit of Rails to get just a, enough data coming in and out, 
you know, you, you can you can prototype really quickly with with these these tools. I guess is what I'm saying. So I can see that applying very well to the aspects of the problem that um, lend themselves to having a visual, uh, uh, you know, concept like a way to conceptualize it visually. How do you handle that same um, task when it's something a bit more like what I usually work on, which is you know some backend system that's just managing data because there's nothing to look at. <laughs> like when I build a system that captures events into a database. You know, you could do a query or, or maybe even build some visualizations. But if building the visualizations isn't the point of the of the thing that we're making, then um, then that can feel a little bit weird to do. So, do you? I don't know if you've run into that situation, or if or if you you know, when you're working with building websites and building iOS apps, obviously there's you know a very clear way to show what something might look like. But how do you handle the or maybe there's always a way and, and you've found a way to do that, but just like, what are the guidelines or, you know, how would you give me advice? I'm like, Hey, I'm building this thing. It's not visual. How can I present something that, you know, people can look at and kind of, um, and get excited about in the same way. Yeah. So, so usually we, we try and work backwards to decide whether the product design sprint even makes sense. And I, I would say we're, we're not doing hundred percent of the time. So there are cases when it doesn't quite, quite fit, but I think if there's, if there's a conversation that you and I had where we could work backwards and say, if we were to show this to some people, what what are the things we really want to check ourselves on before spending, you know, a month or, or two months on on building? So, if we could show someone, you know, an um, in, in interface, whatever that interface is, even if it's um, writing SQL commands or you know some other data interface into a command line and getting back some some fake data. And then asking them the question: Is this the format that you need? Is potentially valuable, and if it's if it's not, if it, if you know exactly what it is, if you're building it for yourself and internally, and you say this is completely the the, the spec that we need, um, then the product design sprint might might not fit. Um, we tend to be hired in cases where it's not quite as clear that there is, you know, a very defined spec. Um, but uh, you know, I do think that the sprints can work in super technical environments like that, where you know the end user is some, someone very technical, or you know even in a very consumer environment. The one we're doing this week has a hardware component that uh, we're not we're not responsible for, but the iPhone app needs to um, interface with a little bit over over Bluetooth. So you know, there's a bit of a scavenger hunt that's going to happen today. So today's Friday, the last day of the sprint. We have. Users that I, I found off of Craigslist come in at 9 a.m., 10 a.m., 11 a.m., 1 p.m., 2 p.m., 3 p.m., and uh, you know we're going to talk to them a little bit first. You know, we're interviewing them to say uh, some questions that are relevant to this particular domain. Um, you know, ask them how they think about it, what words they use, and you know whether we're on the right track, and then kind of send them around the office on this particular um, adventure <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, interview them again to get there. Their, their sense of whether it's working, um, and, and so I, th- I think it's a little bit of that user interface, user interview research mentality that is is valuable, particularly for the makers uh, as consultants uh, who aren't maybe haven't been you know working in that domain before. Yeah, we've we've seen over and over again, um, you know, that you have to be mindful of you know, as a developer, you are you are not a normal person, right? Yeah. In the sense of, you know, the way that we think about the problem or the world is quite often different from the way that um, people who aren't developers think about the problem or the world. It's very true. Yeah, and that, that extra layer of translation from a client to, to us um, can can sometimes hurt, you know, to, to no one's fault, you know, but uh, a client may say, this is how I see see my industry, see my world, but it's very different for them to, to tell it to us uh, versus having, um, you know, we've we've done some project product design sprints recently where we interviewed uh, VPs of marketing. The product was for them, and we don't necessarily know uh, how they how their their workflow at their job works. Um, we've interviewed for another product design sprint um, hiring managers at professional sports teams because that product um, product was for them. And really ask, you know, spending 40 minutes interviewing them about who at their organization they, they talk to, how they think about uh, evaluating candidates when they hire for when they apply for jobs at, at their their team. Do they, do they prioritize education versus you know recent experience, you know, versus whatever? 
helped us inform the product way uh, way better than um, just you know one or two conversations in a conference room with with our, our client. Um, so seeing the person that you're making the, the the software for and hearing them talk about their the context of, of their life or job um, was really informative and we did that multiple times over the first few weeks of the project and changed you know the, the app quite a bit based on those those conversations then we spend the last 20 minutes of the conversation showing them that the what we've been working on and getting their feedback on it but the majority of that time was just understanding their their context yeah it's super cool and I know you talk about about that uh, in the as you say in the in the playbook so people can go and check that out we are kind of coming to the end of our time, and I still have a list a mile long of questions that I'd love to talk to you about. I'm not sure we're going to get to those today. Perhaps we can have you back on again sometime and see how things are progressing with ThoughtBot. But uh, before we do uh, wrap up and I ask you the final question uh, on music, um, I want to make sure I give you a chance to talk about anything that we haven't had a chance to get to today. So uh, is there anything else you'd like people to know or you'd like to mention or that you're working on or just anything you want to throw out there? You know, I, I do want to be conscious of time. Like you said, I know we're coming to the end. I think, you know, I would, uh, I know this is probably a technical, very technical audience. So I'd love folks to go check out our GitHub account, github.com slash thoughtbot, and check out any of the projects that look interesting to them. Give us feedback, you know, tell us where we're making mistakes or, um, you know, open up pull requests or just issues in, in any of those. We're always looking for, for feedback on that kind of stuff and uh, trying, to, trying to contribute back to, the open source community and everything else that's been so good to us over the years. So um, take a look in there and see if there's anything anything where, that uh, is interesting to you. Cool. Well, I, I don't have a big clock that's ticking down to zero, by the way. So if there's any one of those things that you uh, would like to particularly mention or that you're particularly excited about, we certainly can talk about that for a few minutes. Um, sure. You know, I guess the maybe to keep it within the theme of the playbook, you know, the, the projects that I'm, I'm fairly involved with on uh, on the Thoughtbot account are things like Thoughtbot slash laptop or Thoughtbot slash dot files or Thoughtbot slash suspenders, Thoughtbot slash guides. You know, the, those are, uh, I kind of think, within the theme that we've talked about of uh, extracting the things that we're doing over and over again or we feel are, are becoming kind of standards within the company and, and iterating on those. So the laptop script gets uh, um, in an OS 10 or a Linux box um, set up for, for Rails development and the dot files are you know, configuration for Vim and ZSH and Tmux and Git and uh, you know, shell aliases and scripts and stuff like that. And uh, we're always editing and changing those and uh, suspenders is the, the Rails template that I mentioned earlier. And the guides are just a, a couple of markdown files of you know, our, our, our style, we have a star, our style guide in there. and you know, other um, just pieces of our spec that we don't use, things like that, you know, just uh, our list of, of how we're within the tools that are out there, you know, that there's there's Rails and our spec and iOS and all kinds of different ways of testing. There's many different decisions you could make, and we've kind of just documented our decisions and said this is, this is how we're going to um, set up our, our tests and we're going to be consistent about it. And that... Um, has been really helpful, I think, for us across projects, across offices, to be able to communicate and say, I can jump into this this project that, you know, the the Denver team used uh, that was working on a few months ago, but then the client came back and wanted to do another round of a month of work, but the person who the team who's available is in San Francisco, no problem. We can jump right in, and we're super familiar with the, the style um, that's in the project, and we know the tool set and. Um, everything's just sort of expected when you're in there. That's one of the things I think we've always liked about Rails. You know, Rails puts a nice baseline on that, and I think we go a little bit further. Um, we just document what those extra standards are in the, the guides repo. Yeah, that's super cool, and we'll be sure to put a link to those all those things in the uh, show notes so people can... I mean, you guys aren't far, hard to find on the web, but <laughs> we'll yep. put the links there for people that happen to be looking at those. Sounds good. Super cool. And I'm, I, I, it's a shame we didn't get to talk about a bunch of things I wanted to, not least of which was Fridays, since oh, yeah. uh, we both have that in common. And yep. uh, I think it's a topic that, you know, since it's it's a benefit at very few companies, um, people are interested in. But uh, maybe you can come back on sometime and, and we, can, we can talk about the differences and similarities in Friday time at our two companies. That sounds good. Um, well, thanks a ton for coming on. I've got to ask you one more question here, which is the song that you would like us to close the show with. Yeah, and I think we chose uh, another Lettuce song. So this is the same band as the opener, 
Uh, but this one's a cover of Move On Up, which is a song by Curtis Mayfield. So similarly upbeat and just uh, awesome horn section. Fantastic. Well, that's coming up in the background right now. Um, and while we, uh, while we close down here, I will thank you once again, Dan, for coming on. It was super great to have you. Really enjoyed hearing about um, your experiences, and thanks for talking to us about the playbook. People should definitely go check that out. I think it's got a lot of good information, and even just in my um, fairly brief perusal of it, I was like, yep, this is definitely stuff that people ought to know, and, and very much reflects um, kind of the values that, uh, that our two companies hold in common. Um, so, uh, you know, obviously it's stuff that we believe in too, so uh, super cool stuff, and, uh, and more that we could talk about, obviously, but I will definitely. thank you one last time. Thank you and, for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Like I say, I hope we can do it again. And I will I will also, as always, thank our listeners. This has been the Cognicast. You have been listening to the Cognicast. The Cognicast is a production of Cognitech Inc., whom you can find on the web at cognitech.com and on Twitter at Cognitech. Our guest today was Dan Croak on Twitter at Crokey, C-R-O-A-K-Y. The Cognicast is produced with help from Alex Miller, Alex Ward, Damian Mack, David Chalimsky, Jamie Kite, Justin Getlin, Lake Denman, Luke Vanderhart, Lynn Grogan, Mark Phillips, Russ Olson, Ryan Neufeld, Sam Umbach, Sandy Ezel, and Stuart Sierra. Episode cover art is by Michael Parento. Audio production by Russ Olson. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Thanks for listening.